New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In many cultures, solitude is recognized as an opportunity to journey inward. In our culture, spending time alone is often considered unhealthy because we tend to believe that meaning in life is found only through relationship with other people. But to be fully human, we need relationships not only with other people, but with the non-human world, with our own inner depths, and with something greater. For me, that non-material presence is mysterious and sacred. It can be experienced, but not defined. And I've learned that in coming into a deeper relationship with myself, I developed the capacity to connect more deeply with others. These are the words of our guest today, Robert Call, and they serve as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions. Robert Call has spent years wandering North and South America, working as a scuba instructor, wilderness guide, construction worker, dishwasher, truck driver, bartender, painter, firefighter, and professor. He began undergraduate studies at age 40 and now holds a doctorate from the University of British Columbia. He's the author of Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes, A Year Alone in the Patagonia Wilderness. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So so what led you to spend a year alone? What, what, what prompted you to do that? I've always spent time alone since I can remember. And I could tell stories about you know family tensions and needing to get away and all that. But mostly it's just an inner call that I feel called to get away and, and be with myself in, in the non-human world. And those periods of time stretched as I got older into my teens and then 20s. When I was in my late 20s, I spent three months alone in the wilderness of British Columbia. I didn't know what I was doing when I went. Um, Survival-wise, I was okay. But psycho-spiritually, I, I was really naive in terms of what was going to happen to me. And I almost didn't make it back. I almost went insane. When the notion of who I had of myself started to fall apart, I thought I was dying or losing it completely. And um, at one point, I just called for help. And something, some whatever, lifted me out of, of this totally inner panic. And, uh, and there was a sense of, of floating and, and actually seeing myself laying on the forest floor. I thought a bear was coming to eat me. Uh-huh, yes. And so, um, and and there was a, a shift in, into just the sense of being woven into the universe and cradled by this non-material presence. And I spent the next three weeks in and out of that state. And at that time, decided that someday I'd really like to spend a year alone in the wilderness and have have a more spacious opportunity to explore. Kind of, you kind of almost in a hypnagogic uh, in and out space. 
Yeah, what was really fascinating is how our memories of things like that change. And so when I went into this year, I had high expectations. I thought well, I'd go through a, a, a shift after a few months, and then I would just be into that space of lightness and ease and, you know, enlightenment. And uh, and when that didn't happen, when what was actually going on during this year didn't match my expectations, I went through huge amounts of difficulties in, in rejecting what was actually going on and what's wrong with me and wanting things to be different. And it was only slowly after time that I came to start accepting what was going on inside of me, the way I was being forced to accept the storms on the outside. And I started to see these inner movements as a kind of internal weather, not my fault, not under my control, but simply the movement of the universe. And as I did that, I began to more clearly reflect back on that earlier experience and realize that I had created a mythology in my own mind about how it had been. And that really back then, too, there were all these struggles from day to day, some, some moments you know, feeling alive and vibrant in the world and other times alienated and closed down and resistant. So, so where were you raised? Southern California in Ventura. Uh-huh. In the countryside inland from Ventura, Oakview town, about halfway between Ventura and Ojai. So that's fairly <laughs> rural. I mean, that's yeah, it was quite rural. Mountainous? A hilly. Hilly. Yeah, it was hard scrabble down on a river bottom. And uh, we were poor. I grew up real poor. And, um, you know, my mom was from upper middle class Germany and my father from lower middle class New Jersey. And most of our neighbors were from lower class wherever. You know, so there was a... My mom certainly didn't feel comfortable there. And my dad became a born-again Christian, so there was a lot of stuff like that around judgment. Uh-huh. And and uh, I was a real rebellious kid. I didn't want to be jammed into any kind of box. Uh-huh. And so yeah. one of the places I could get away from all that was to go sit by myself and watch the buzzards and the clouds floating across the sky. We jump ahead. Why, why did you choose Patagonia? What prompted you to choose that area? I had come up that coast some years previously. I started undergraduate work at 40, and then after I graduated, I I went traveling again and came up that coast and just fell in love with it. Um, I had won a fellowship to go on for graduate work, and this old dream of a year in solitude reactivated. And as I was coming up the coast, I went, wow, this is amazing. This could be my place. Because in three and a half days on the ferry, there's just nobody in there, you know, Um, during the year, I heard airplanes twice and saw people once when the Chilean government came in to check up on me to make sure I would survive. And there's no boats, there's no mining, there's no logging. And, and I, it's not easy to find that in, in, on Earth today. And especially because I have a prosthetic leg from a motorcycle crash, I wanted to be on the coast so I could get around and get my firewood and my supplies and everything by boat rather than on my back. Sure. And... So it was like, wow, yeah. And when I enrolled in UBC to do graduate work, um, of course, there's the coast of British Columbia kind of beckoning. And I'm saying, well, you know, this would be a lot easier logistically. But when I started talking to people and looking at maps, I realized that the BC coast has a lot of traffic. There's a lot of airplanes and boats and kayakers and just all kinds of stuff. So um, I just decided that I was going to go for it and, and really step out over the edge. Yeah. So how did the motorcycle accident occur? What what happened? I was living in the Dominican Republic teaching scuba diving, oh. and um, I was on my way to, to dive with the whales. I'd always wanted to dive with whales. And I was on my way, and um, Don, 
and some guy just pulled out of the cane fields in his pickup truck right in front of me. I smashed into him. And I spent a year in the hospital in Montreal trying to save my foot. My foot got ripped off. They, you know, m multiple surgeries trying to splice it back on, and finally just um, was so infected that we had to let it go. And and that's when I started undergraduate. I couldn't walk, and so I shifted domain from the physical to the intellectual. Well, that was a big shift in, in, in it was life. major, yeah. yeah. And and I loved it at first. I, I felt like a sponge just soaking it up. But what was interesting in coming to University, I started at Berkeley when I was of normal age, and, and I flunked out, dropped out, because it got in the way of my street life, and it just felt like it had nothing to do with me. And when I started at UBC, at first there was this flush of intellectual excitement. And I, in, in being a scuba instructor, you're on the cusp between teaching people about the underwater world and working people through their fears. And so I couldn't decide whether I wanted to study psychology or biology. And so I decided I would just do both. And it took me five and a half years instead of a normal four. And during that time, I, I started, things started to feel weird to me and I didn't know what was going on. It just, I started feeling dry and empty. And after that, when after I graduated, I went into solitude for a couple of months in Quebec and the world came alive again, just, you know, pulsatingly alive. And I did too. And I looked back and I went, whoa, you know, I had had to check myself at the door of the university. It was all about intellect and, and theories and facts. And then it didn't seem to relate a lot to when I walked through the world or looked inside. What I was learning in the university didn't seem to, to relate to what was going on. So when I decided to go on for graduate school, uh, one of the my kind of fundamental um, orientations was that I wouldn't let that happen again that I was going to bring in my own spiritual journey, my, my most profound questions, and weave that into the intellectual academic world, bring together heart and mind. And so that was kind of the basis of this. So this year in solitude was a personal exploration inward, a meditation retreat, but also field work for my PhD. Pretty extreme way to go about it. I mean, it's like it, it, not many people would would think of doing that. It's, it's a very unusual thing. You know, it is a call. Um, I've, I've just always felt called to solitude, and it gets stronger if I ignore it. You know, it just gets stronger and stronger. In some ways, uh, it's very similar to people that feel called to do meditation retreats. You know, we put it off, we're involved in our life, and the idea of disengaging for 10 days or three months or whatever it is, and then finally, it, it just gets strong enough that we, you know, we, we really got to set aside the, the daily life for a while and, yeah. and check out. So that's how it is for me. Plus, it's an adventure. So for me, it's, it's, not, it's not just a spiritual exploration, but it's, it's a, a, an adventure in survival and survival in the wilderness and the beauty, the incredible beauty of Southern Chile. All of that was part of it. Well, with, with, with your prosthetic, you had to learn to walk all over again. You had to walk, learn how to move and everything. Yeah. 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 I find that um, I can do almost everything that I could before. I just have to do it a different way. And I don't walk in the same way I used to. Instead of hiking now, I canoe and kayak more. Um, but most things I, I can still do. There was a... When we were in the hospital, you know, they were doing this thing. Oh, yeah, with your prosthetic leg, you'll be able to do everything. And uh, I asked the woman, I said, will I be able to play piano? And she said, oh, of course. And I went, oh, that's fantastic. I've never been able to play piano. This is great. <laughs> In planning for, for the trip, what, what, you, you must have had to go through some, quite a bit of logistics to figure out what you're going to need and, 
and all of that. How did you do that? The logistics were a bit daunting. Uh, if we just think ahead to everything we're going to need for the next year, no store. I didn't get any additional supplies. Everything I, I needed, I took with me, all the food and everything. So we think ahead, everything that we're going to need for the next year, and then push it that we're not going to have a house built. We have, we're going into the wilderness and actually build a, a camp in which we can survive, an environment in which we can survive. It, it starts to get daunting. And I knew that if I usually I don't plan that far ahead for for journeys, but this time I knew that if I waited till the end, I was going to forget stuff. And so when I'd get really tired of the intellectual academic preparation for this trip, I'd go to the map libraries and look at maps, or I'd I'd work on lists. And and so I would just let my mind wander. And yeah, I've done a lot of this stuff, and so I have a pretty clear idea of things that I might need. And so I would just make lists. And, and listen, let my mind wander. So I had lists all over. And then towards the end, the three months before I was leaving, I was preparing and starting to do my shopping. Then I consolidated lists and organized them into categories and, and like that. So, yeah. so and then and food, for instance, food's pretty simple because the numbers of things you have to take, materials to build a cabin and then tools to build it and tools to keep the outboard running and spare parts. And I had electronic communication. That was my agreement with the university as I would take a satellite telephone that I could send emails that I was okay or if I, things were desperate, I could call for help. Because of that, I needed wind generators and solar panels and repair gear for all of that stuff and clothes mending stuff and fishing gear and repair stuff for the fishing gear and the boat and repair gear for the boat and the kayak and pumps and on and on. Yeah. And so the food was was a different and, and a much simpler issue. You just kind of figure out how much you need for a day and then multiply through by 365. Let's continue this in just a moment. Okay. I'm speaking with Robert Cole. He's the author of Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes, A Year Alone in the Patagonian Wilderness. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Robert Call, and he's the author of a book entitled Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes. And that's what we're talking about, basically disappearing into the wilderness uh, and living alone, living in solitude. Going back to the logistics, I mean, I, I can imagine just just the sheer idea of, of planning out for a year. And of course, you, and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, there's always surprises. Right. Right. And you certainly had some while mm-hmm. you were there. Also, the extreme climate that you were going into. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that was another area. I mean, you know, heat, cold, wind, uh, rain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not heat so much. 
I could have stood with more heat. Uh-huh. But plenty of cold and rain and wind. Um, yeah. it's, it's one of the windiest places on Earth. Right. So what did you build? I mean, you, you built um, you built more like a lean-to, right, wasn't it? Well, it, it was actually quite a beautiful shelter. It was very comfortable. I it covered it with translucent tarp because it was cheaper and lighter to take in than plywood. And also it let in a lot more light because even though I had some electric generation, my use of electricity, I kept extremely low. And so I wanted, especially during the dark months of winter, because mm-hmm. where I was was almost to the tip of South America. And so it, it was 51 degrees. And, and so it's extreme where I was, the ocean froze on occasion and the days were very short. The ground is extremely soggy. Water tables, when it's not actively rainy, is four or five inches below the surface. So I put posts in down to bedrock, which 18 inches down. And then on top of those, I laid horizontal stringers and built up on top of that. So I was up higher and I could put firewood and whatnot under the cabin. Had a plywood floor and a single water, not a, not a peak, but just a single angle down on the roof and uh, and plywood roof. And then I covered the outside with tarp, and I covered the roof with tarp for waterproofing as well. And so you then, carried some wood in? I, t- I took my construction materials in, uh-huh. yeah, because the trees down there are not suitable at all for building. They're really twisty. It's not like, um, you know, what we think of as, as pines and like yes. that. So, so the outside was covered with trans, translucent tarp. I had some plexiglass windows I could put in so I could see out. And then the inside of the framework, the framework was of two-by-twos and two-by-fours. The inside was covered with clear plastic, so it created a dead air space of a couple inches for, for insulation. And my plan was to staple the tarp and the clear plastic on. And I had to make it tight so it wouldn't flap in the wind. And I got out this, I took 2,000 staples and a staple gun. And when I got them out to start stapling, I discovered I'd taken the wrong size staples for the staple gun. It was just unbelievable. (laughs) Yes. So one by one, I had to take apart 2,000 staples with side cutters and drive them in with a hammer. And my fingers were all taped up with duct tape because I'd been, they were split from the cold and wet. And I kept smacking them with the hammer and the, the staples kept bending and if there had been a place to address it, I would have sent myself a serious letter of complaint about this. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, a real opportunity to practice patience, and and also it gave me a chance to um, be very creative in in my profanity. I came up with whole new strings of words <laughs> I'd never thought of before. Every time I smacked my finger, <laughs> you so. also took a pet, a, a cat named Cat. Name Cat. Talk about Cat. Well, I wasn't planning to take a pet. It changes the dynamic of solitude completely. I've never taken a pet before. And it wasn't my intention this time, but the government officials down there said that if I planned to eat any shellfish, that I needed to take a kitten with me because there's a lot of red tide. And they have a government testing program for commercial fishers, but I wouldn't have results available to me. And what locals do is any suspect shellfish, they feed to a cat. And then if the cat dies, they don't need it themselves. So that was the theory. And this little kitten I got was really a wild kitten. It had never been touched before, and it it clawed and bit. And it took a little while for us to build some sort of relationship. And, um, of course, it didn't work out because we got really close. And um, and so it it almost seemed like for me to use this cat, because he grew into a cat, and he, um, as, as a test organism, would sort of be like coming home from work. And opening your fridge, and there's some old leftovers in there, and, and you smell them, and they're not quite right. So you call your kid over, 
you know, to give them a test for you. And it, it felt almost like that. And yeah, so right. instead of cat checking shellfish for me, I was catching fish for the cat. <laughs> but it was a uh, it was a profound relationship. It was extremely intense. T- cats are amazing because they yes, live they with are. one leg or one paw in, in the civilized world and one in the wilderness. And then they're a bridge that, that carry us over. And this cat was a male, extremely strong personality. And we had some serious philosophical differences about the world. Um, I thought he was my pet, and he was pretty clear I was his human. <laughs> yeah, right. And so he wasn't obeying. Cats have a way of that. Absolutely. <laughs> and the thing that he became, he and the wind and the rain became my strongest teachers. And what Cat taught me about was my own shadow. There, I mean, I've known for a long time that I'm capable of dark behaviors because I'm a human being and given the right circumstance. But that's quite different than actually seeing yourself doing things that are that are dark and, and cruel. And one of the challenges of solitude and opportunities is you're right there with yourself. It's it's not easy to look away. It's not easy to avoid what's going on inside and outside. And so I'd, I'd slap him sometimes. He'd get right in the middle of what I was doing, and I'd put him down, and he'd come right back. And as a background for all this, I was in physical pain almost all the time because I tore the rotator cuffs in both shoulders. And, I felt, and that was partly because of my prosthetic leg. So all of this, there were times when I was just, you know, in, in just on the edge. And, and he'd come back into the middle of what I was doing. I'd put him down, he'd come back again, and I'd slap him and throw him aside. And over and over, I vowed that I wouldn't do this, that I wouldn't interact with the amount of anger any longer. And over and over, I'd break that vow. And to to watch this rage bubbling up in me and see my own cruel behavior, it was extremely painful to face that stuff about myself. And my sister, who was married to a vet, had told me, I'll just squirt a cat with water. They hate that. It's long before. And uh, that'll stop them doing what you don't want them doing. But this is a cat that was with me out in the storms. I'd be out on these ferocious rainstorms, splitting wood or measuring limpets or whatever, and the cat's right beside me getting soaking wet. So squirting him with water was, <laughs> not, was not getting the job done. So I started throwing cups of water at him. And then he's, it took me a while to figure it out, but he was enjoying this. And it was like I was a big mouse for him or something, and, and he was ready to dodge the water. And so I threw buckets of water. I started going crazy around the cat. And he knew how far I could throw a bucket of water, and he'd get just beyond bucket-throwing range, and he'd, he'd look at me with his look, you know, the cat, the cat look. Um, so most of the time, we were extremely loving and, and close, but there were times when—and one of them, I'm somewhat allergic, so I didn't let him inside the cabin. He had his own box on the porch, but he'd get lonely out there at night. I was outside all day with him, but at night I'd go in, and, and he'd be crying. And just hour after hour, it was just kind of yowling, and it would just drive me nuts sometimes. So it was really a, a challenge to to be with this inner darkness and, and to continue to work through it and, and uh, find some sort of equanimity and, and compassion towards myself as well as him. Did you have any kind of painkillers or sleeping pills or anything like that? Not sleeping pills. I did have painkillers. Um and some anti-anxiety pills and some antidepressants. But I really resist. I used painkillers at times, but I really resisted because I wanted to be with whatever was coming up and, and to work through pain, relax into it. And over and over my, you know, I'd love to be a heroic figure. It would be great um, to be the heroic adventure, <laughs> man against nature kind of thing. But that's not what my story is. My story is going out 
to move, try to move beyond that and, and become part of the non-human world and part of myself. And, and I can't pull it off because my wilderness journal is just full of whining about the pain. You know, because it'd be wonderful and joyful, and and I'd be giving thanks for being there. And then the pain had come crashing in, and instead of having any equanimity, I'd, I'd just be bitching and moaning and whining. And and that was another thing that I was facing with about myself that I didn't like is there was not much of a sense of nobility much of the time around it. Yeah. So I was avoiding taking pain medication. I I did take it, but I was, you know, whenever I could, I would just stay with the pain as much as I could. Did you take any books with you? I did. I took a lot of books, way more than I read. And at the back of of Solitude, there's a list of books I read there. Yeah. I I always take the I Ching and Chuang Tzu into Solitude. And I, I took several Ken Wilbers. I've read Wilbur and, and had some serious arguments with him while I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and yeah. um, some Alan Watts. Um, Thomas More was really important you know, because part of this process was this notion of self-improvement. That's what I went with. I was going to fix myself and get enlightened. And, and so there was this constant sense of denying and not accepting who I actually was and wanting to be something different. And Thomas More's Care of the Soul was really yes. important to me and just setting back and taking a deep breath and just going, this is how the world is. This is how you are. Learn to honor all aspects of it. And all of these things are part of what it means to be human, not just the stuff that it's comfortable and we might like. Yeah. Did you have any Merton with you? I had a little bit of Merton, and and he sicked me off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, Thomas Merton always feels like he's pointing a finger at me and telling me what I should do. And so there's some kind of resistance to this universal you and um, this kind of prescription about how we're supposed to do and what it means to be human. And, and so for me, this exploration was I was trying to go in as a radical empiricist. And because it was in part a PhD program, a research program, I had to be absolutely dead honest in what was going on. I couldn't cook the data. I couldn't make it flowery and and mythologize it. And so a lot of it was just letting go of all the prescriptions of how it should be and really noticing how it actually was for me. And, um, And so Thomas Merton you know, kept telling me how it should be. And I kept going, well, that's not how it is. <laughs> you can tell me how it should be, but that's not my experience here. Yeah. Merton was certainly someone who, who uh, believed in solitude and silence. And I think of the Trappists, you know, they, they have that intention that, although it's not the way it used to be, but mm-hmm. essentially that uh, I'm always amazed at Merton because he was able to live in, sol- live in, that, live in that context and still maintain a relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. In a way that pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found fascinating in in being physically isolated, in physical solitude, was how that experience of solitude would change. My my situation from day to day wasn't changing, except in the weather would change. But I'd cycle inwardly from feeling very in in solitude, just in the moment in the wilderness, and then slip out of that and be living in the past or future in imaginary conversations with others. And even writing in the journal, there was some sense that I'm not in solitude here. I'm writing to an imagined reader. I'm in relationship with an imagined future reader. So you Um, found yourself leaving the present moment. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and there was a a sense of the same thing in in this feeling of, of loneliness or isolation, that there were times when I'd be completely 
just engaged with myself at a very deep level and with the non-human world and even even with people out there somewhere. And then for no apparent reason, I'd slide down into this experience of of alienation and isolation and be cut off, not only from other people or the, the, you know, non-present other people, but from the non-human world and from myself and from spirit, just kind of this little knot of, of ego, if we want to call it that, cut off. And that's what I was going to really look at this shift from the sense of isolation into the experience of freedom and belonging. I'm speaking with Robert Cole. He's the author of Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes. If you'd like more information about his work, you can go to his website, bobcull.org. That's bobcull.org. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, and that's newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Bob Call. He's the author of a book entitled Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes, A Year Alone in the Patagonia Wilderness. And that's what we're talking about, basically finding time alone for ourselves. And Bob, most of us can't in this culture. We're, we're not going to go away for a year. We're not going to go to the Patagonia Wilderness. In fact, it brings up an interesting question. When people come to you and say, well, should I do this? What do you say? No. Um, or rather, don't ask me. Ask yourself. Because there's a couple of things. Is is um, after the book and the movie Into the Wild, um, the guy was woefully unprepared to to, to do what he did. That was an extraordinary film, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, again, it was a, a, a heroic film, and and I have some difficulties with this creating of mythological heroes. And what I've really tried to do in the book is not do that, because when I read stuff like that, I'm left with a feeling: what's wrong with me? Because I'm not that way, and so. I really try to not do that, but to keep company with readers and, and say, yeah, you know, I'm just another guy. This just happens to be what I do. But it does require a, a pretty broad set of skills, physical survival skills to go into the wilderness and also the psychosocial skills or the psychospiritual skills, rather, to deal with whatever comes up because there's no real easy escapes. One of the ways you can escape is to stay busy. But if if you're exploring inwardly and and some dark stuff comes up or you start losing it, you really have to have the capacity to to sit back and kind of hunker down and be with whatever's coming along and and not repress it because it's going to boil up then and also not allow it to to sweep you away completely. So my sense is, and and this is true for myself as well. Um, the solitude is is a it's a challenge and it can be dangerous and I only go when I feel I'm called to go then that's when I know I'm ready when something inside calls to me and then when I feel that call I don't need anybody else to recommend it to me and and if they say you shouldn't go that doesn't much matter either you know I, I just got to do it sort of a thing so um, I do think it's valuable for all of us to disengage from the franticness of our daily lives and spend time with ourselves in meditation or quiet walk someplace. But deep wilderness solitude, I mean, I think it's wonderful. I think it's absolutely wonderful, but I don't feel it's my place to recommend it. Besides your cat, which who who had a, a bit of a bit of wildness about about him, 
Um, what about other wild animals? I mean, the, the, the wild animals there, I think you did have cougar. Uh, did you have any problems with wild animals? No, not at all. Um, of course, who was it that said, I, I keep trying to find this um, quote, that the closest wilderness area is within us? Who said that? Uh, it could have been John Muir. Maybe, or maybe Gary Snyder. I can't Gary remember. Snyder could have been yeah. Gary Snyder. But I, I love that that quote. And, and so, you know, I was a wild animal. Muir said going out is going in. Uh-huh, yeah. So I think that we, you know, that's one of the really important things for us to remember is when we, wherever we live, is we have wilderness right inside. It's just a matter of slipping below the social conventions and the social um, kinds of constructs, conceptual constructs about who we are and how the world is and, and slipping below that into a different, deeper realm. How about your friends and family, friends, people that knew you, so when you decided to do this, what, what, what was their reaction, their response? They're kind of used to it in a way. Uh, uh, they've given up a long time ago talking me out of stuff. Mostly they were very supportive. My friend Patty Kuczynski has always been supportive, and she was my main contact person. And she actually came to spend a month with me on the island after the year was up to help me in the transition to be back, uh, come back into the human world. Um, so that was really valuable. But my, my sisters didn't quite understand why I'd want to go, but they didn't try to talk me out of it. They were very supportive. I have two nephews, and they thought it was a great idea. And they said, you know, one is now at Barry, Massachusetts in a five-month retreat. So, um, But in terms of animals, there, were, there was a lot of life, a lot of birds, a lot of birds, which was wonderful. And sea lions and otters and, and dolphins and, um, you know, like that. Land mammals, not, I was on a tiny island. It was only 150 meters by 250, embedded in an archipelago of many other islands. And probably 10 miles as the crow flies from the crest of the Andes. And there are some pumas down there, wildcats, but not where I was. And so dealing with animals wasn't an issue. In Canada, when I go out, I, bears are always a, a challenge for me. Sure. My um, sort of mythical inner bear is, is one of the symbolic sources of, of my existential angst. And down there, that existential angst, the feeling of being a tiny speck and vulnerable in the face of a huge, uncaring universe, or even malevolent universe when things go in that direction, sure. was the wind. So I, I felt very vulnerable in the face of the wind because these huge windstorms would come up out of nowhere. And they didn't seem to have a correlation with my barometer. And so there was, you know, I had to go out and get firewood and, and go fishing and, and either the inflatable kayak or inflatable boat. And there were some exploratory trips I wanted to go to far glaciers. And so it was the wind that was the where I explored mostly around fear and how I was projecting my fear out to the outside and, and slowly began to bring it back and experience it directly and come to separate the, the tactile energy of storms from my emotional response to that and start to really look at that more clearly. And one of the joys was when I started to surrender and, and came to embrace death, not only as implacable, but as a, as a real ally in this journey and uh, the impermanence of life. And of course, that, like everything else, comes and goes. One one day I might be very willing to die. Another day, when things were unpleasant and the pain was, I was sometimes eager to die. 
and then I'd be hanging on again the next day. But the wind taught me a lot about surrendering. And I'm not talking about the, the biological urge to survive. That's, sure. that's just wired into us. But but the psychological sense of that the universe is malevolent and, and that holding ourselves at bay and that feeling of alienation, letting go of that and allowing ourselves to become part of the process of life and death. And eventually, um, the wind became my most profound teacher, as well as cat and the rain. And then I wanted to play with the wind towards the end of the year. I'd see the condors and the seagulls, you know, playing in these huge storms. Yes. And I couldn't get out in the kayak. It was just too rough on the water. But I made a series of kites when I was a boy. My, I didn't get along well with my father most of the time, but he taught me to make kites. Because when he was a boy, in the turn of the previous century, that was part of what boys did. Yes. So he taught me to make kites. And so I'm down there and I'm trying to remember the curve of the kite and all that. And it took a while, but I finally made a series of kites that would, would fly. Huge tails because I'm barely able to stand in the wind. This isn't a breeze. I mean, I'm out there in 50 mile an hour winds that are gusting. And uh, I'd, I'd tie a kite onto my fishing rod and I'd let out two or 300 yards of line. And, and the kite in these gusting winds would swoop and dive and jerk, and it felt like a huge fish on the line. It was yeah. really exciting to, to be out there playing with, with this. And sometimes the kite would almost disappear into the clouds. And then it was as though I were sky fishing for the wind, uh, the ultimate in catch and release. And it was a, a joyful dance to, to be actually playing with the wind on this level. So you, you did a lot of fishing? You caught fish? Yeah. Well? yeah. yeah. Fishing was uh, a major part of my survival. Whenever the wind would let me out, I was fishing there a, a red snapper kind of fish. Yeah. I had enough food to survive, but I augmented it with, uh, with fish, and I sprouted lentils for greens. How did you cook it? I had a propane stove. I had a wood stove for heat and a propane stove, and, and so I fried them. And uh, delicious fish, just just wonderful fish. And I'd usually catch enough for four or five days, and then I'd fillet them and put them in a container. And under the in the winter wasn't a problem because there was ice and snow. But even in the summer, under the trees there was ground pools of water that was always forty forty five degrees, and so I could keep fish in there for four or five days. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, the whole notion of catch and release is, seems a little strange to me in some ways, uh, as though uh, the idea of fishing as a sport is, um, it is on one level, but it's kind of like seeing going to church as just a social activity or gardening as, as a pastime. And, and that's true on some level, but sinking below that, there's a real sense of communion in, in both of these activities. And the same for me with fishing, to catch fish and turn it loose, fish probably doesn't see it as a sport. Um, there's there's a, a real joy in in being out and floating in this a kind of a sense of timelessness that of you know feeling my way back through the universe for hundreds thousands of years how people have have sat patiently with a hook and and a string waiting for for you know asking for dinner and, and sustenance and and the, a real sense of of um, of appreciation for this this gift of sustenance from the sea from the universe. And also at those times, uh, that's when death was really, really present to me. Um, and that was part of the deep integration into the flow of the world as well, of this experience of taking life. Because we, as being biological beings, we don't survive unless we take other lives. That's just the fact of it. And we can, you know, make that, we can become vegetarians, and, but every step we take, our immune system that's just how life works. It's life feeds on life. Yes. And then there, there uh, was it 
for people that don't that believe you're killing vegetables, you know? <laughs> Plants are life too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, finally we have to kill to survive on some yes. level. Yeah. For or every time we go for a walk in the woods, we kill something, we step on something. And so yeah. essentially, you know, we can withdraw more and more and more. But for me, the the real um, challenge is is to learn to live in a sacred way, and and to take life in a sacred way, not not wantonly. And that for me is the difficulty with our culture is we're taking life wantonly, and and we've separated ourselves from the flow and the sacredness of all life. Now, I, mean, I think the Native Americans would bless. They would. They might kill a deer, but they'd bless the deer. Absolutely, yeah. honor the deer, the elk, or the and, buffalo, yeah. or whatever, and thank thank the deer for giving. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, what about meat? Did you have any meat at all? I had a little dried meat that I took a, a few chunks of dried meat that I hung up and, and uh, ate that once a week. I'd, I'd cut a, sl- a couple slices, of, like bacon, dried meat, and have a couple slices of bacon. And I had a block of cheese that I'd hang up and wipe down with vinegar on a regular basis. And um, part of the deal is. In, in terms of logistics, you got to figure out how much to take for the year. And so you just figure out what you need for a day and multiply it by 365 and then add 10% for emergency. And then the second part of that, you got to stick to your budget. So de- deciding how much to take. And then every three months, I'd get three months of food out, and then I'd divide it into thirds for a month and then to a week. And so I knew I can eat this much this week. I have containers. I don't have to think about it anymore. How about treats? Did you have treats? I did have treats. I took some dried fruits and some chocolate. I took three bottles of booze, so I'd have a tiny sip, except I, I put the chocolate and the booze away because I felt I was, you know, escaping into food. Um, and I sprouted some lentils. I tried a garden. A garden didn't work. Um, I tried everything in in the spring. I planted some lettuce, and it took forever to germinate, and it wasn't growing. And so I mixed some kelp with the soil, and I peed in the soil, and put it out in the day in the sun, and put it in at night. And after three months, the biggest lettuce leaf was the size of my fingernail. (laughs) So... um, and uh, but I, I was very organized with the I, I even to the point of this big block of cheese with magic marker I'd made marks on it how much I could eat each each week you know and so it's kind of got a little bit anal sometimes I think about it but it uh, that's the way I like to do some people would have eaten all their treats and you know and just done without for the last four or five months but that's not the way I do it so but I had lots left over because I did just stop all treats for about three or four months and, and try to really simplify things and be with the whatever was coming up and, and not use any avoidance mechanisms as much as I could. There's always way to, to every hide. Day, every day's a new day. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm speaking with uh, Robert Cole, he's the author of Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes. If you'd like more information about his work, you can go to his website, and that's bobcull, K-U-L-L dot org. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is Robert Call, and we're exploring wilderness and living alone and solitude and the importance of that, actually, for our, for our life, to really discover parts of ourselves that we may not be knowledgeable about and go deeper. Uh, and wilderness is a way to do that. Certainly being alone and being in solitude is a way to do that. One of the things that struck me was this, that you had a sign on your, I guess you put it on the wall, and it was like, uh, don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why was that there? Because uh, one of the risks in doing something like this, and particularly in doing it as a university project, is the accusation of narcissism, right? navel-gazing. Uh, and so that was a, a huge part of worrying about that at times. And uh, the kind of irony of trying to become less self-focused by going and spending a year in the wilderness. But I did take things very personally. What the cat did, you know, was directed against me. And when I was wanting to go out and get firewood and the wind started blowing, I'd I, I take it personally. And so it was uh, this recognition, little by little, of letting go of the world and letting go of myself. One of the illusions we have is that we own the world you know we actually own the earth human beings we think and and taking it further that we own ourselves and so that was a huge transition for me is to slowly relax this this desire for inner control and to start treating what was going on inside of me in the same way i was learning to be with the outer weather that weather patterns come through and it it just seemed like my inner weather would, would come roaring through. Sometimes storms would come rolling through. For no apparent reason, often society, when we're feeling really down or frustrated or angry or fearful, we attribute it to some external cause. And to just day after day watch these inner changes and slowly come to go, oh, yeah, this is just like, this is weather. This is internal weather. And that was a sense of not taking it personally, of just, and the freedom from my perspective, comes not in getting what we want or controlling things, but surrendering to things as they absolutely are in the moment. You know, that I found it astonishing to see so clearly out there how much time and energy I frequently put into denying that the world is the way it is. It's just amazing to me that, you know, this slight dislocation, looking sideways, having, having an, an imaginary image of how I am, how the world is. And when I do that, I don't live fully. I live fully when I settle into things as they are. And that doesn't mean pacifism, that we have to give up working towards change. But, you know, there's that fundamental level that the world's always changing, but in every instant, it is exactly as it is. And and I don't know why that's so hard to get, but it sure is. You know, it's really, really tough to, to just kind of go, oh, yeah, this is how things are. And my task is to to perceive and accept things as they are, not as I might want them to be. So yeah. that was part of the, the not taking things personally. Another important sign I had on my door is Krishnamurti's Truth is a Pathless Land. And that was a, another big part is during this year is to move beyond any kind of conceptualization, any kind of hierarchy of, of value, whether it was Buddhism or anything else, and just slowly leaving it all behind and simply be with my experience of the moment. And, uh, you know, everything else is storytelling. It's just, you know, making making up stories about it. And I also, in reading Wilbur, one of the things I got so upset about was this this hierarchy of developmental stages that he, he gets so much into. And um, his models seem very static to me. And so, I, for me, because I'm pretty simplistic in my thinking, it came to me that what mattered a lot more than stage of development was orientation. doesn't matter where I am. But the orientation, if I'm focused inwardly and not, not inwardly in terms of exploration, but in, in terms of holding on to, you know, having, I want this to be this way, 
no matter where I am, no matter what I'm holding on to, whether I'm holding on to some notion of enlightenment, that's that's what causes me distress. If I can turn into an openness to surrendering, giving myself to the universe and allowing myself to participate and flow and change, then it also doesn't matter where I am because that's an orientation of, of open-heartedness. And so, it, I, you know, during the year, my conceptualizations of the world seem to get simpler and simpler as I... I admitted that I knew less and less about what was going on (laughs) (laughs) and that the world after a while became just amazingly mysterious. And one of the things that I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but the statement, you know, life isn't a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. So I went, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But then I got to the place where, okay, so my problem to solve is how I move from experience life as a problem to be solved into experience life as a mystery to be lived. And I struggled with that for a very long time. That's what I went for, to control this shift from problem to mystery. And then I had to finally acknowledge that the shift, too, is a mystery to be lived, that the Zen statement that enlightenment is is a, an accident in practice makes us accident prone. And so there was a, a growing sense that all the teachings I read, this kind of step one, step two, step three, that make the spiritual journey seem so pragmatic and, and straightforward. In my case, they don't work. You know, for me, it's it's a kind of a freeform dance. And there's some basic steps that others can show me about. But when I get down inside, I gotta, I gotta come into relationship with myself and, and with the music of the universe, and and start to explore spontaneously how things actually are. It's very, it's very complicated in some ways. It's it's not a simple thing. It requires everything that we have to to bring to to that task. Yes. and that's joyful, because when we move there, there's then there's freedom. We're not trying to live up to anybody else's expectations about how we should be doing the spiritual practice or right. where we're supposed to go. But we. We, we go, okay, how is it for me? There was a Rumi piece that was in, in, important to you while you were in Patagonia. You might want to read that now for us, for yeah, listeners. This, this was very important in a time when I was really struggling to be different than I was and that I didn't want my experience, these dark feelings and emotions, to come up. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing. Invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yeah. So you when you were telling me that when that that was really the only rumor you had to read that you read that and that was enough. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a friend gave me the book before I went and I just opened it at random and uh, and I put it back on the shelf and I went, okay, that told me what I needed to know. And uh, other times I considered I looked I'd look at my bookshelf and go maybe I'll read some Rumi and then I go no, he gave me what I needed for for this year. Sure. What about female companionship? That clearly wasn't wasn't didn't happen in Patagonia, but. Um, my, I, I live alone, and um, one of the lonelinesses in my life is, is that I don't have a sexually intimate relationship right now. I've been celibate for quite a few years, and, and not al- always by choice. Um, I have a, a profound partnership with Patty Kuczynski, who's the woman that came to the island for a year, and we're still very close. We go camping every year, and um, we email every day, and we talk on the phone. So we're partners on many different ways. 
I once somebody asked me once how to define our relationship, and so I asked her, and she said, "We can't. It's always changing." So my relationships are very important in my relationships. In some ways, a ground for me that when I start slipping into depression, I remember my connection with her. And so um, one of the things for me about solitude is really important is it in in becoming more aware and more open to other various aspects of myself, I, I become more capable of deeper relationships with other people as well. So it, it doesn't feel like uh, two different things. They, they bo- both those aspects seem to weave together solitude and the social context. So so now you're living in Vancouver. Mm-hmm, for the time in the city. being. You're living in an urban area. Mm-hmm. Very different than yep. Patagonia. Yeah, it is. Yeah. One of the things, the challenges of coming back from solitude is there's, for me, always kind of a sense of depression for a while because everything opens up out there and becomes so vibrantly alive. And then I come back and old filters, old habit patterns start to, to pull me. I wouldn't pull me down, but constrain me again. And the, the temptation is to imagine myself being back out there. Um, the temptation is for all of us to imagine ourselves living someplace else, somebody else's life. We read about somebody else's adventure and we think, oh, if I could only go live on an island for a year, my life would be fixed. For me, the challenge is to really come into the to here and now and to recognize that there is no fundamental duality in the world. Um, I like what the will, the notion Wilbur develops of holons. There's no final unity and no final duality. But in some sense, if the non-human world is sacred, so is the human world. Because we evolved out of, we came out of. And so, and if non-human nature is sacred, so is the city. If there's spirit anywhere, it's got to be everywhere. And so there's the challenge of when I start to daydream about how it was and imagining how it was, to really be clear with myself. There were hard times there in solitude. You felt alienated talking to myself. You felt alienated there. Let it go. Come here and deal with your present feeling of alienation. And when I do feel isolated and alienated, instead of avoiding that feeling, if I just allow myself to sink into it and experience it fully, there's a sense of of transformation and it opens out into joy and, and a sense of connectivity. So it's this an ongoing process of of neither denying or being swept away by it settling back. And this is a basic Buddhist teaching of settling back in the moment and learning to be with whatever arises. Sure. So would you say that your, your spiritual practice is Buddhist meditation? That's part of it, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, in solitude, I still spend a lot of time in solitude. I go out every year. And so probably solitude is my primary teacher, my primary practice. Um, but yeah, I, I meditate every day. And Patty's very good at calling me back if there's been some days when I've missed it because I get caught up in stuff. And she said, you're not sitting enough. I can feel it. I can hear it in your voice. And so it's really useful to for to have an external reminder at times. So one of the wonders of solitude is even without a lot of self-discipline, there's just day after day, week after week, month after month of, of this spacious time to settle in to the inner world. If you don't do it in the morning, there's the afternoon waiting for you. And um, and and kind of daily activities naturally become moving meditations, just cutting wood and then cooking and going fishing. Those things all become a kind of form of, of bringing, bringing me back into the present moment. Bob, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. I've been speaking with Robert Cole. He's the author of Solitude, Seeking Wisdom in Extremes, A Year Alone in the Patagonia Wilderness, published by New World Library. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website for bobcall, K-U-L-L dot org, bobcall.org. You can also get the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3288. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.